So where, where did we leave off? <laughs> For those that are just tuning in or visiting, my name is Jeff Freimeyer, and I had the privilege over the summer for about seven weeks to fill in for Pastor Josh while he was on sabbatical. And now, out of the strange mix of schedules, I finished teaching last weekend. I finished all my teaching for the semester last weekend. And so I was free. So for the next seven weeks, bless your hearts. <laughs> We get to do round two together, so. <laughs> I count it a great privilege uh, to be here. As Eric was talking about uh, Doug's long tenure here, that's the same relationship in terms of time that we've had with this congregation, nearly 30 years. I feel like this is a second home to all of us, and you're just part of the family, so. Thank you for welcoming us back. We left, um, we left Florida on Thursday uh, in t-shirts and the air conditioning on in the car. We arrived with slightly more on. It's not that we're um, not used to being up north. My wife graduated from Niagara Falls High School, so it's not, and we both went to Anderson University. I grew up across from Philadelphia. So it's not like we're not used to cold weather, but we've lived in Florida for the last 10 years, and um, I've thinned out my, my wardrobe. So I hope you like what I have on. You, you may see it frequently, I don't know. But we feel very honored uh, to be here. My thanks uh, to the Board of Elders and to the leadership of the congregation for having the confidence to invite us to come back and to spend time with you all during this exciting transition. Thank you to Doug and to Susan for their continued graciousness. We're back in the basement. <laughs> Doug is checking things off his bucket list. Mom and dad in the basement again. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, and why do if you have your Bibles, phones, iPads, whatever it is you may carry with you, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of John, Gospel according to John and chapter 3, just so that you might know I'm not going to find my way out of the Gospel of John for these seven weeks. So uh, you might want to get used to it. The first three chapters will be the place where I will focus on Sunday mornings. Hear the word of the Lord. If you are able to stand during the reading, please do. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, <laughs> Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God. 
For who could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him? And in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Uh, um, how, um, how can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I'm curious as to why Nicodemus sought out Jesus. You got to admit, it's an odd pairing of two extremely different people. See, Nicodemus is a big city boy. He, uh, he's from the south. He's an urbanite. He loves the hustle and bustle of the big city. He lives in one of the world's great cities in one of the most, if not the most visited city in the world, Jerusalem. He lives in the heart of Judaistic culture and religious and theological thought. Jesus, <laughs> and Jesus is a country boy, he's from up north. He ministers in small towns and villages and backwater hamlets. He spends his time in the wilderness and likes it where no one is, where no cities are, and where few people are. He draws crowds not in the cities, but on the seashores and on the lakefronts. These two guys seem to have little in common when it comes to their living and working areas. They could not be more different in terms of what their own context is. See, Nicodemus is a priest, for he is politically powerful. He's a rich, he's upper crust, he's high society. He hangs out with the rich and famous, the hoi polloi of his society. Jesus, he's a tradesman, carpenter's son, works with his hands. He's blue collar all the way. He hangs out with fishermen, and then tax collectors, and then the dregs of society. Nicodemus is a temple priest. He's an elite. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He dresses nice. He looks good. I'm sure he smells good. Jesus walks the dusty roads. He's a synagogue worshiper. He doesn't have any responsibility at the temple. He only visits it periodically, but when he goes to the synagogue, he's involved, but he, when he reads scripture, he gets into trouble for it. Don't you love somebody that reads scripture and gets in trouble for it? He turns over the, ta the tables in the temple, but then he turns around and he sits at table with people who are publicans and sinners. These guys seemingly have nothing in common. 
Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a member of the ruling class of Judaism. He is a member of the group that is the harshest critic of Jesus' ministry and teaching. Jesus, on the other hand, is a teacher ordained by the common folk, and he is the harshest critic of the Pharisees and the way they teach the law and interpret the law. you got to admit, <laughs> it's an odd pairing of two men. Nicodemus, the traditionalist, versus Jesus, the radical prophet. Maybe the most curious part of this, or maybe a way to sum up the curious pairing of this, is simply this. Nicodemus comes at night to see Jesus, who is the light. It's an odd, odd pairing. What a curious couple they make. They represent two totally different worlds, two totally different worldviews, two totally different perspectives on faith and religion, theology. So help me. I'm still trying to figure out why Nicodemus, a Pharisee, seeks out Jesus, a wandering healer. On the surface, it makes no sense. Their conversation provides some fascinating clues, but the problem with the conversation is that it's almost what they don't say that's more interesting than what they do. Remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which means he's a politician. This is an appropriate place to groan. He's well-versed in what I refer to as insincere flattery. You know what that is. Politicians do it all the time. You get some senator who stands up in the middle of a discussion and says, I'd like to thank my learned colleague from West Virginia for his wonderful insights and for his brilliant understanding of this issue. And then he spends the next 20 minutes telling you why his brilliant, cal, uh, his brilliant cal, a colleague from West Virginia doesn't know what he's talking about. In response, the senator from West Virginia stands up and says, I'd like to thank my friend and colleague from Ohio, how, how wonderful it is to hear him speak on these issues. And then he spends the next 20 minutes saying that his wonderful colleague from Ohio doesn't know anything. Insincere flattery, it's an attempt at civility. And because this is not something new that we invented, this is politics from time immemorial. And Nicodemus, at his heart, is a politician. Look at how he tries to butter up Jesus. It's great. He calls him rabbi. I could do a whole sermon on that. It's an incredible time. Rabbi. And then he says, uh, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. You're a performer of signs. Oh, yes, there's signs and wonders that you do. Oh, yes. And God must be with you in order to do such things. Somebody said flattery will get you nowhere. But Nicodemus is sure going to try. I feel like he's, he's leading up to a but. You know what I mean? We know that you're a teacher sent from God. You wore these miracles. Only God could be with you. But, however, 
Jesus, in a brilliant ploy, interrupts him. Doesn't let him go any further with this insincere flattery. And um, he interrupts Nicodemus with this dreaded two-word repetitive statement. If you've got the King James, you know what it is. It's verily, verily. Oh, my. Verily, anything but verily, verily. The NIV tries to clean it up real nicely. It says, I tell you the truth. That's not what verily, verily means. What verily, verily means is, put it in modern language, verily, verily means sit down and shut up and let me talk. See, Nicodemus is the soul of tact, isn't he? He's the, he's the politically correct conversationalist. He's the Ann Landers of good manners. But Jesus has got a bit of the John the Baptist in him. After all, they're cousins. You knew that, right? So I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree here. And he's uncomfortably direct. Jesus cuts to the chase. He looks you in the eye and he says exactly what has to be said, and there are no frills to it. There's no sugar coating around it. He's the tell-it-like-it-is guy, and let's get on with it. And from that moment, when Jesus interrupts him, he has Nicodemus on his heels. Nicodemus is on the defense. He's back off balance. He's out of his comfort zone. And Nicodemus is not able to control the conversation. See, I'm not sure why Nicodemus came to Jesus, but I know when he came to him, Nicodemus is intended to control the conversation. And with one sentence, Jesus throws all that out the window. He looks at Nicodemus and says, forget all that. Let me tell you this. You must be born again. You've got to be born of the, of the flesh. You've got to be born of water, the flesh. You've got to be born of the spirit. You've got to have conversion. Seems simple enough. Even the media likes to use that phrase nowadays. But I will tell you that I don't think we appreciate the power of that statement when Jesus makes it to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is rocked by this incredible idea that is not part of Jewish teaching and law. Jesus challenges everything that Nicodemus believes, everything that Nicodemus has done and committed his entire life to. In one sentence, Jesus attacks and challenges the entire belief system of Nicodemus and the Pharisees. How does he do that in one sentence? It's rather simple but profound. You see, if you're a Jew, you're saved because you're born a Jew. Let me say that again. You see, if you're born a Jew, you're part of God's chosen people. Therefore, you have a relationship with God from the time you are born. If you're not born a Jew, guess what they call you? They call you a pagan an unbeliever, somebody who is lost. In the Jewish system of belief, circumcision is the ritual 
that recognizes and celebrates that this child is born a Jew, therefore this child is part of the chosen people of God, therefore this child is part of God's forever family. And Jesus says, eh, I know you've got to be born of the flesh of water, but that doesn't mean much. Imagine that, that physical birth in the Jewish system is the gateway to God. It's the gateway to the idea of a relationship with God. As long as you're born a Jew, you're okay, you're saved. It's a physical thing. And in one phrase, Jesus destroys all of this tradition. All of these foundational beliefs by simply saying, you got to be born of water, of the flesh, but you must be born a second time. And this birth has to be a spiritual one. See, this is the culmination of what's been rolling around in Judaism for a, quite a while now. John the Baptist was this towering figure, and he did some strange things. He didn't go to the temple. Get this. Remember this. He didn't go to the temple. He didn't tell people that they had to believe the sacrificial system. He didn't even tell them that they had to obey the law. He dismissed all of that stuff, went out in the wilderness, dressed funny, ate funny, and had a harsh message. And guess what? People came from everywhere to see John the Baptist. Even Pharisees came out to see John the Baptist. What did he do? He baptized people. Well, that's pretty good. We baptize people all the time. Not if you're a Jew. Do you know where baptism comes from? When the Jews celebrated the birth of a child who entered into the chosen people, they would circumcise the male children. And they'd have a big celebration. You know, the moil come out, family gathers, the community gathers. Snip, snip, you cut off the foreskin, everybody says, yay, yay, they celebrate, have food, and praise God. But if you were 35 and were a former pagan who then said, I want to be part of the Jewish community, I believe in this Jewish God, you had to be circumcised. The problem is, you're not going to invite the neighbors in for a 35-year-old guy Lay down on the table, okay, drop your drawers, and let's have some fun. <laughs> and so they came up for proselytes, they called them, for those who converted to Judaism. They came up with a different, they felt like they had to come up with a different ritual that proselytes could do. And they went back into the, um, the Old Testament rituals that related to the high priest on the Day of Atonement, because the high priest on the Day of Atonement would ceremonially wash, go into a pool of water, and he would ceremonially wash himself from head to toe, and then he would get out and he would put on new robes so that he was, quote-unquote, clean on the outside. It was a ceremonial thing. So they said, well, there's an idea. So if you're a 35-year-old man 
converts to Judaism, you still have to be circumcised. We'll do that in private. But then we'll find you a river or some water and we'll baptize you. And that'll be the public demonstration of what has happened. And John the Baptist picks up on that and says, yeah, the problem is it shouldn't just be the proselytes. It's all you Jews that were born a Jew and think that you're saved just because you were born a Jew that don't realize that you have to have a relationship with God. And so he starts baptizing in the wilderness, and these Jews come out of the woodwork to be baptized by John. That's the germination of what Jesus says to Nicodemus. And in part, it's what Nicodemus is trying to figure out because he knows the ministry of John the Baptist. And when Jesus says, you got to be born a second time, not just of water, but of the Spirit, he starts to get at Nicodemus's understanding of what salvation really is. Nicodemus ought to be outraged by this. When Jesus says you've got to have a second birth, he ought to be insulted by the idea. After all, he should be calling out Jesus and saying, like other Pharisees said, you're a blasphemer and you tell things that are false. And yet, he doesn't. Not only doesn't he call him out to be a blasphemer, but he continues to ask questions of Jesus. He continues to be engaged with Jesus. Not just in this conversation, but he will be engaged with Jesus secretly for the rest of Jesus' life. Nicodemus only occurs, only comes up in the Gospel of John three times, the last of which is when Jesus is dead on the cross and he and Joseph of Arimathea get together and take him down off the cross. Nicodemus, for the first time after Jesus is dead, makes a public confession that he believes in Jesus. Up until this time, it's all secret stuff. But from this time to the end of Jesus' life, Nicodemus is involved with Jesus. How in the world? Can he be involved with somebody who blasphemes everything that Nicodemus has taught all of his life? And so I'm left to ponder, what is it that brought Nicodemus to Jesus in the first place? Because everything Jesus says ought to be insulting to him. Interestingly enough, the answer is not in the conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus has. The answer is in the context in which that conversation takes place. Okay. You made the mistake of asking me back, so here goes. I got I to gotta put my professor hat on here for a moment. Let's do a little Bible study from the pulpit. You ready? You cannot study the Bible by picking out five verses and studying them. That is not the proper way to do Bible study. If you're going to study the Bible, you have to study those five verses, but you have to study what comes before it and you have to study what comes after it. You have to study the Bible in context. If you don't study the Bible in context, then you, that's where we get the idea and the phrase that you can prove anything out of the Bible as long as you take it out of context. And it's true. As long as you don't have any connection to what happens before and after, you can just about prove anything that you want, and people certainly do. So let's do our Bible study in context because this conversation with Nicodemus just doesn't come out of the blue. It comes out of the events that have been taking place. 
I must also do a second thing. Still got my professor's hat on. Are you ready? I got to do a second thing here. And that is to let you know now, since we're going to be seven weeks in the Gospel of John, that John is not a historian. He could care less about timelines. If you want the timeline of what happens when in order, go look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke particularly Luke, because Luke wants to be the historian. You know, he's writing this autobiography about Jesus. And so this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, you know. It's the way we write history. Thomas Jefferson was born here, and he grew up here, and his parents were this, and he went to school here, and he learned to do this, and then he went to school, and he became a lawyer, and then he went. That's how you do an autobiography. You follow the timeline. John could care less about timelines. Matter of fact, nothing in the timeline that he puts down, with the exception of Jesus dying and uh, being resurrected, nothing seems to be in the right timeline. And John is unapologetic about it. He's not writing an autobiography. Matter of fact, at the end of his gospel, he says, I write these things to you that you may believe. That's the key. John is writing things to tell you about who Jesus is in order for you to understand and believe. And so John takes all kinds of things out of context, out of timeline, not out of context, but out of timeline for his own reasons. For instance, just before this, in the end of the second chapter, he has Jesus overturning the the tables in the temple. Every other gospel writer has the same event, but they all have it happening the last week of Jesus' life just before he's crucified. John says, nah, I think I'll put it at the beginning. Why? Because he has a purpose and it's not a timeline. And because of that, the context of what Nicodemus is saying and what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is in John in the context of what John puts in there in chapter 2. You see, in chapter 2, Jesus performs, according to John, his first miracle. He's got some of his disciples with him, and he goes to a wedding feast in Cana. And when he gets there... His mom comes up. I love this story. Come on, folks. I love this story. His mom comes up. Come on, let's get into this. His mom comes up and says, son, they've run out of wine for the, for the wedding feast. This is terrible. Do something about it. And Jesus looks at her and says, woman, now I got to tell you, when I was raised, And my dad was there, and I looked at my mother, and I said, woman, I'd be sitting down, or maybe not sitting down for some time. Woman, it's not my time. And like a good mother, she completely ignores him. Looks at the servants and says, do whatever he asks. And Jesus, not prepared to do a miracle, performs what in the Gospel of John is his very first miracle, and it's turning water. There's some water jars over there, and he tells the servants, go take a ladle, pull out some of the water, take it to the chief wine steward. He does, the wine steward is amazed because not only is it good wine, it's the best wine. Normally you serve the best wine first, the cheap wine last, but boy, you've saved the best wine to last. This is amazing. And the only people that know that Jesus did anything are the servants and a few of his disciples. It's a strange first miracle. You got to admit, there are better miracles to start off with, aren't there? 
I mean, Jesus did some incredible things. Let's pick one of those to start off with. How about Jesus walking over to a guy who's never walked, who's lame, and, and pulls him up and says, walk, and he does. That would be a good miracle. How about if he comes uh, across and his first miracle is somebody who is blind, and he puts his hand on their eyes and prays for him, and all of a sudden they can see. That would be a good miracle. My, my. How about if he had a leper, and a leper came, and Jesus prayed for him, and the leprosy disappeared. That'd be a good miracle. You want a good miracle? Put a guy in a tomb three days dead, wrap him in mummy cloth and so that he's almost mummified, and then stand outside the grave and say, Lazarus, come forth, and have the guy walk out no longer dead but alive. That's a good miracle. That's how you start a ministry. Turning water into wine? Eh, He had better miracles to choose from. So why does John take this little obscure story that happened, I don't know where and when, or where I know, Cana, but I don't know when it happened. Why does he take that and stick it at the very front of the gospel story about Jesus to say this is what's going to reveal to you more about who Jesus is than any other miracle that he does? Because this simple miracle tells you everything you need to know about Jesus' ministry. And that's this. Jesus has a transforming power. Boy, you were slow on that one. I've been away too long, haven't I? When Jesus is present... When Jesus touches something, when Jesus is involved with anyone or anything, it is his natural inclination and ability and focus to transform whatever it is into something else, something that can be used for his purpose. The reason John puts this miracle at the head of Jesus' life is because this is what reveals to us who Jesus is. Jesus has a transforming power. You, you lower down a guy on a bed from the roof. Four guys have to lower him down because he can't walk. And Jesus looks at him and says, get up, take your bed, and go home. And the guy who isn't able to walk and paralyzed gets up picks up his bed, and walks home. You get somebody who is so uh, filled with demons, filled with evil, that they have to chain him up to a wall because he's absolutely crazy and out of his mind. And Jesus comes by, casts the demons out of him into some pigs, and the guy gets dressed up, sits at a table, and says, what's for dinner? You get a woman a woman who for 12 years has had a flow of blood. Now, folks, I really can't preach on this because I'm not a woman. But I'm trying to imagine being in a menstrual cycle that never stops for 12 years. I have no idea what's that like, what that is like, but I got to tell you, it does not sound pleasant or easy, but it sure sounds painful and troubling. For 12 years, this woman hasn't been allowed to be around anybody. You think it was tough going through COVID for a few months. Anybody she's around, she makes unclean. 
She hasn't been to a synagogue. She hasn't been to a temple in 12 years. She can't make sacrifice. And when they pray for people to be forgiven, she obviously isn't because the blood keeps flowing. She hasn't worshipped. She hasn't socialized. She hasn't led a normal life in 12 years. Jesus walks by. She goes into the crowd. A serious, serious infraction. Reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And lo and behold, the blood flow stops. That's the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Anything that he touches, anything that touches him, even in the slightest way, like the hem of the garment, Jesus transforms them into something that is new and whole. You give him fisher, fishermen, Jesus says, all right, I'll make them fishers of men. You give him the lame, he turns them into leapers, praising God and jumping for joy. You give him a boy's lunch, he'll feed 5,000 people with it, and guess what? He'll have some leftovers. You want to know who Jesus is? You want to know what Jesus does? It's simple. He transforms things. He transforms people. He transforms lives. He transforms broken bodies. He transforms sinners into saints. He transforms sin into forgiveness. Anything he touches, Jesus transforms. This is the hope of the gospel, isn't it? That if anyone here in the sound of my voice or listening online will simply open themselves up to Jesus Christ, Jesus will touch them and touch their soul and transform their lives. Is there anybody here who has been touched by the power and the presence of Jesus Christ and has had their life transformed? Can I get this anywhere, anybody? Come on. Anybody here been touched? Anybody here been transformed? And Nicodemus is desperate to experience a transforming power. Why? <laughs> because he's a priest. He's a priest that's been teaching the law all of his life. And the one thing he knows is that the law can't change you. Isn't this what Paul argues for about half the New Testament? The law is, is not successful in transforming lives. Nicodemus knows this. Because he's tried it. He's done all the rituals. He's done all the teaching and interpreting of the law and follow the rules and don't do this and don't do that and only do this and don't eat these things and don't walk this and don't carry this. And it doesn't change lives and it doesn't change people and it doesn't transform anybody. If you teach people law, they'll obey the law until they get caught. How many of you drive faster than the speed limit? It's a 14 hour trip here. I made it in eight and a half hours. <laughs> if you're a priest who has a real heart for God, and I think it's rather obvious that Nicodemus does, then you have to want, as part of that heart for God, you want people's lives to be transformed. 
Folks, I, I was a pastor for more than 30 years. I still have a pastor's heart. My greatest desire is to see people healed, to see people transformed, filled with the Spirit, saved. I love, I'm a change junkie. I love transformation because that's the business that God does. Jesus is the only one who has a transforming power. And Nicodemus is convinced that that transforming power is what is necessary for the people to whom he ministers. Therefore, the church today ought to get excited whenever there's change. Yeah, I noticed the, the few amens I got before are now all absent. I don't like change. I don't want change. Well, folks, the church ought to be excited about change because we're in the change business. Come on, this is true. You got to start amening this even if you don't believe it. We're in the change business because Jesus Christ is the continuous transforming agent who transforms everything, anyone that he comes in contact with. When Jesus is present, do you, do you think Jesus is here today? Gotcha. When Jesus is present, guess what? He brings. He brings transformation. He brings change. He brings new. He brings fresh. The church thinks it's in the stuck business. Oh, come on. You can laugh at that. You know it's true. We're here to defend the status quo. To make sure that the uh, preservation of the way we've always done things is the business of the church. Seven last words of a dying church are, we never did it that way before. <laughs> you can explain the amen later on which side of that it was there, amen. Sometimes it takes a dramatic event. Oh, I don't know. Let's think of one. A pastoral change. There's a dramatic event. To remind us that God is always in the changing business and that he transforms everyone and everything that he comes in contact with. If change is so frightening to us in the church, then why do we do baptisms? Last time I checked, the only reason to dunk somebody in water on Sunday morning without being in a bathing suit or having a diving board is for them to say, I believe in Jesus and he's transformed my life. Why celebrate baptisms? Why, why celebrate baby dedications and the change that's happening in people's lives in this new life that's come into the world? Why celebrate? Why weep? Why thank God? Why praise God when someone comes to the altar to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior unless we believe that change is the essence of what we're, our ministry is all about? Why build new sanctuaries? You've got a lovely facility here. You've spent a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of work, a lot of effort to build, maintain, and keep up this marvelous facility. Why did you do that? Why not just leave the old? I mean, it was adequate. It got us through. Why birth new churches? We'll just stay here. All right, I, 
I know nobody's listening online. Joni and I started our ministry in Hickory, North Carolina as an associate pastor. They had a marvelous, beautiful sanctuary. It, it would seat, I don't know, probably about four or five, probably about 500. One day when I first got there and I'm exploring, I opened the door and went in. Lo and behold, just beyond the narthex was the old sanctuary. It was still there. It was still being cleaned. It was never used. They didn't do weddings in it. They didn't do funerals in it. They didn't have classes. They didn't use it. I said, why is that still there? And the pastor said, there were too many people on the board that had gotten married in that sanctuary. And so they built a new one, and it took them 15 years before they expanded and tore down the old sanctuary. And they did it and had to have a service a final service in the old sanctuary to say goodbye to it. <laughs> and what did they build? They built a grow room. Yeah. Now, if you and I walked in, we might be tempted to think that it was a gymnasium. But oh no, that would be worldly. We're not building a gymnasium. We're building a grow room. Don't look at the basketball things on the floor and the nets and everything, and, and don't look at the tables for the fellowship hall or the kitchen that's off to the... No, this is a grow room. Come on, people. We have difficulty, let's face it, we have difficulty letting go of the past. The problem is Jesus leads us toward the future. Some of you, when you get to your dying breath, are going to say, give me one more, Lord, because I really like it here. I'd rather stay here than go to heaven. Come on, folks. If the express pulls up in the parking lot, I'm volunteering to get on. How about you? Because whatever heaven is, and I don't have any idea what it really is like, it's got to be better than being here. And if you don't like change... You're going to hold your breath for a long time, trying not to die. Why embrace a pastoral change? Because anytime the church is forced to look at change, they are at the heart of God's ministry. Change is the currency of Christianity. And transformation is the very mission of God. Leave that up. Let that sink in for a moment. Change is the currency of Christianity. Folks, you may not like it, but you are at the cusp of great things because change is a coming. I don't like change. Change doesn't care. Change is a coming. I want the old ways. Okay. We'll keep the old ways. 
But changes are coming, and we'll do things new. But I don't like things new. Yes, you do, because you don't buy old meat. <laughs> I'm just saying. What do we do with this? How do we live into this change that God has forced us into? Let's face it, he's forced us into it. Well, let's begin by changing the starting time of the service. That produces change. I wish you were all up here and could look into the eyes of the staff and the board of elders who were going, what? We didn't have any. We didn't vote on it. What did we do? What's he doing? He's, he's power hungry. Get this guy. Actually, you already changed the starting time of the service. It's not me. I noticed out there there's, a, there's a, a sign, and it says that 10 minutes before the service begins, they're inviting people to come and kneel at the altar and pray for the church. So I think you ought to come 10 minutes early. If you, if you come at 10.15, come at 10.05. You can still get your cup of coffee at Holy Grounds, Gathering Grounds, whatever. You can still grind things over there. <laughs> You can still fellowship. You still have time to get your kids checked in. But for a few minutes before service begins, why don't you you just come down and kneel and pray? Why don't we change the time of the service to begin 10 minutes early? The singing isn't going to start early. The announcements aren't going to... Nothing's going to change on the platform. It's all going to start at 10.30. But 10 minutes before, the people of God ought to be here. Now... I'm long past the idea where I can kneel down and get up and it's comfortable. But there's a real nice spot right there that I like to sit. And so 10 minutes before service, I'm going to be sitting there. I looked around today, two people were here praying. Maybe there ought to be a few more. After all, change is coming. Let me also talk to some of the online folks. Oh, geez, now I'm really meddling you're online, we're so grateful. Some of us, many of us, have been online for quite a long time. But, you know, it's the holiday season. I'm hoping and praying that this pandemic is moving toward endemic. I don't know if it will. But maybe this is a time when you ought to show up. Maybe this is a time when the church ought to be gathering. We've got all these kind of events. What are we, we're cooking brats and hot chocolate or whatever we're doing. We're doing concerts and singing. and all. We've got some special events just because at a time of change, I think it's important that we're together. And if you're one of those, I'm a regular attender at church because I show up once a month. Why don't we push that and have you show up, I don't know, let's be radical. Why don't you show up every Sunday for the next seven weeks? And see how it goes. The church needs you. The church needs each other. So show up 10 minutes early. Actually, I guess the first one is show up. And show up 10 minutes early. And then embrace the idea that this is not a time of loss for First Church. But God counts this as a time of gain for this church. You need to understand this is a gain for the church in Pendleton and celebrate their gain. But you also have to realize this is a a wonderful gain for First Church Talmadge 
and celebrate what God is going to do. I have no idea what God is going to do. I just know it's going to be different, and therefore it's going to have God's imprint on it. And he will continue to change and transform this place. Whoever, whoever will come to be the pastor of this congregation. I'm excited to be here because I'm a change junkie. I went into the classroom to be a professor because, frankly, when you're a professor, you see things changing in people's lives minute by minute. You give a lecture, you have a discussion, they present a paper, or in my case, they stand up and preach where they've never preached before. And you watch them learn and grow, and by the time they finish, they're doing things differently than how they started. It's a lot of fun to be a professor. Plus, I, I, I get to be sarcastic, and I, I, I get to force them to do things they don't want to do. This is a great gig. <laughs> but I love it because I deal with people that are in the process of being transformed every day. Sometimes in the church, it can be discouraging for pastors because nothing seems to change. Well, folks, this is not one of those times. Whatever happens, things are going to change because God is in part of this church and he is present and active in this congregation. Can I get an amen on that? Would you stand with me as we pray? God, we just want to say thanks. We just want to celebrate the fact that you are not willing to keep us stuck in a rut and that you're not willing for us to live in a grave even with the sides pulled out. Help us, O oh Lord, to celebrate life. We're in this marvelous season of Thanksgiving and Christmas when people will be doing changes. They'll change their habits. They'll change the way their houses look by decorating. They'll change so many different things. Let us live into the transformative change that you will bring. Because Lord, if you're present, we can go through anything, change anything, become anything that you desire for us to be. Your faithfulness, is so great, so wonderful, so marvelous that you will not leave us stuck in our sins, but you will draw us out to great heights. Thank you, O oh Lord, for your faithfulness to us. We celebrate it in Jesus' name. Amen.